0: First reading today is Isaiah twenty nine eleven to twenty one. For you, this whole vision is nothing but words sealed in a scroll, and if you give the scroll to someone who can read and say, "Read this, please," they will say, "Answer, I can't. It is sealed." Or if you give the scroll to someone who cannot read and say, "Read this, please," they will answer, "I don't know how to read." The Lord says. These people come near to me with their mouth and honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based merely on human rules that they have been taught. Therefore, once more I will astound this people with wonder upon wonder. The wisdom of the wise will perish, the intelligence of the intelligent will vanish. Woe to those who go to great depths to hide their plans in the Lord, who do their work in darkness and think, who sees us? Who will know? You turn things upside down, as if the potter were thought to be like the clay. Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it? You did not make me. Can the pot say to the potter? You know nothing. In a very short time, will not Lebanon be turned into a fertile field and the fertile field seem like a forest? In that day, the deaf will hear the words of the scroll and out of gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind will see. Once more, the humble will rejoice in the Lord the needy will rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. The ruthless will vanish. The mockers will disappear. And all who have an eye for evil will be cut down. Those who with a word make someone out to be guilty, who ensnare the defender in court and with false testimony deprive the innocent of justice. Therefore, this is what the Lord, who redeemed Abraham, says to the descendants of Jacob. No, more, no longer will Jacob be ashamed No longer will their faces grow pale. When they see among them their children, the work of my hands, they will keep my name holy. They will acknowledge the holiness of the Holy One of Jacob and will stand in awe of the God of Israel. Those who are wayward in spirit will gain understanding. Those who complain will accept instruction. Oh, Sorry, I read too far. Sorry, I got caught up. And the second reading is from Psalm fourteen. Psalm fourteen, one to seven. For the director of music of David, the fool says in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. Their deeds are vile. There is no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. All have turned away. All have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Do all these evildoers know nothing? They devour my people as though eating bread. They never call on the Lord. But there they are, overwhelmed with dread, for God is present in the company of the righteous. You evildoers frustrate the plans of the poor but the Lord is their refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores his people, let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. Third reading is from Matthew 3. Matthew three thirteen to 17. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, the heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him and a voice from heaven said this is my son whom I love with him I am well pleased now the final reading is from Colossians 2 6 to 23 So then, just as you receive Christ as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world, rather than on Christ. For in Christ all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day, Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are destined to perish with use, are based merely on human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body. But they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Are they Oh good.: Well, many years ago now, and it is many years ago um, I spent a winter in Pakistan as part of a student elective. Uh, it was actually the winter of the first Gulf War, and uh, in the Islamic Republic of Pakistan. Uh, America was deeply unpopular and it's not too little to say that uh, Americans were hated. Um, And so as it turned out one day I had to take a a bus from one city to the other Um, and I find myself getting on this bus. I'm the last person on, I'm holding my ticket in my hand and as I go down the aisle of this bus to the only remaining seat there's dead silence and 30 pairs of narrow eyes followed me all the way to my seat and... um, as soon as I sat down, uh, the man next to me quietly leaned over and said, and are you an American? And I said, oh, no, I'm an Australian. And instantly, the mood in the bus changed because, uh, to my good fortune, the previous winter, the Aussie cricket team had toured Pakistan and they had had the very good sense and common grace to just, just manage to lose to the Pakistanis in front of the home crowd. So Australians were greatly loved. And then the next question was, and what city do you come from? And I said, well, I'm, I'm from Perth, thinking, ah, how am I going to explain Perth to this guy? Like, what does he know about Australian geography? But before I could say any more, he sighed and he said, oh, very fast wicked, very fast wicked Indeed. So from that point on, I was everybody's friend. And the reason, of course, is because I had been placed. I had been identified. I was from the tribe of Alan Border and Craig McDermott. I, I was he of the city of the very fast wicket. So I was known to them. Well, as we turn the page and, and dive on down into Colossians 2... Um, we're going to find Paul giving us a way to identify and to locate ourselves. Not on the basis of cricket, but on the basis of something else. And and this is the basis for us of a new identity that changes absolutely everything in one small phrase. The only thing you have to remember today, and that phrase is, in Christ, in him. So Paul begins this section of the letter in verse 6 saying to them, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to walk in him, deeply rooted and built up in him, established in the faith as you were taught. Now you might recall up to this point in the letter, Paul has expressed how very pleased he is with the news that Epaphras or Epaphras has brought to him about this young church. They're strong. They're growing well. But we've discovered Paul also has reason to feel concerned for these Christians and expresses it in verse 8. Take care, he says, lest someone take you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world, rather than on Christ. And there are more warnings like this. Uh, We read last week in verse 4, he said, I tell you all this so that no one may deceive you with fine-sounding arguments. As he goes on, uh, he's uh, worried by the news that these Christians seem to think it's important for them to observe Jewish traditions, um, such as the Sabbath and and a kosher diet, and he's alarmed about some kind of developing spirituality uh, that seems to involve the worship of angels and, and ascetic practices, practices that punish the human body. And you have to understand for Paul, these are not neutral issues. These are not simple issues of personal preference. He warns them. They are at risk of being disqualified, like an athlete cheating on drugs. And what he calls a hollow and deceptive philosophy uh, takes two forms, really, neither of them compatible with a life of faith. So on the one hand... He's identified a a reliance on human tradition, particularly the Jewish traditions. Now, for Jewish communities throughout Asia Minor in this world, those traditions were really important. The Jews were absolutely considered strange um, in the Roman Empire because they worshipped only one God. They were practically atheists and they had no image of this God. There was no statue to bow down to where Greco-Roman society was full of gods. They worshipped many gods. And the worship of those gods saturated the world these people lived in. You couldn't ply your trade, you couldn't travel, you couldn't go shopping, you didn't socialise without paying homage to the gods. So for Jewish folk, keeping those traditions uh, was, was a very important way of remaining faithful to the law of Moses in a very pluralistic environment. And it was also the way that you kept your identity intact. So they circumcised their baby boys. They circumcised their Greek converts. They observed the Sabbaths, the feasts. They followed a kosher diet. And they were very particular about avoiding contact with anything in the world that would render them unclean. And this is the first conflict to emerge in the early church in the book of Acts. Should Gentile converts to Christianity then keep the Jewish traditions, because the argument that was applied was, well, now you're the people of God, so of course you should. This is how you please God. This is how you maintain identity. But just as in the book of Galatians, Paul won't have it. On the other hand, Paul names a problem with the spiritual forces of this world. That's a great big clumsy phrase. Uh, it will be easier for you if you know that this is the Greek word okay? Um th- This is a really difficult concept to translate. And so diff- you'll find different English translations of the New Testament cash this out in very different ways. But for Paul's purpose, it captures the flavour uh, of, of both the principles and the elements that make up the worldview of the culture around them and the demonic spiritual forces that he understands to be at work behind that worldview. You need to remember, this is a young church. Many, if if not most, of these people did not grow up in Christian homes. They grew up as pagans, worshipping Greek and Roman gods. Epaphras, Epaphras himself, was named in honour of Aphrodite, the, the Greek goddess of sexuality and beauty and fertility. So it would have been very tempting for these early Christians to continue to worship the other gods as well as Jesus, to, to incorporate Jesus into the, into the pantheon of gods and into a, a pagan mindset. And they would still have felt the anxiety of their times to placate the gods and the unseen spiritual forces that uh, shaped their culture behind the scenes, that that influenced everyday life. It wouldn't have been easy to be a follower of Jesus in their world. So if you start now to to, to grasp the shape of the dilemma that Paul's addressing, you might recognise it actually has some similarity to our own situation. Because in the Western world, we Christians are the eccentric minority group uh, and we are deeply out of step with the practices and beliefs of our uh, society. And our situation is somewhat complicated further by the fact that we live in a culture that's been deeply shaped by Christian values. So, in fact, our society's most cherished moral principles and its ideals are basically Christian in their assumption. I mean, of course we should love our neighbour, uh, Of course, everyone has dignity and value, regardless of race or or gender. Well, of course, the poor should be shown mercy and justice. Um, It's widely assumed these are basic human values, when in fact they are uniquely Christian values that have come into our society through the church. And that means we will sometimes struggle to grasp how radically different the gospel actually is to the culture we find ourselves in today, particularly when it comes to thinking through how we live. And in fact, we get caught between exactly the same two dilemmas that face the Colossian church. So let me be daring and take an example. In 2017, we had the plebiscite on same-sex marriage and... This proved a very confronting issue for the church as a whole. Um, And it was particularly disorienting because non-Christians used Christian values to critique the Christian response, uh, particularly the response to the no vote. They said, come on, it's all about loving people. And in fact, it's all about love for these people. If people love each other, that's all that matters. Everyone has dignity and value. So how can you possibly exclude one group of people from the benefits that all heterosexual people enjoy? And the Christian church's response to this typically tended to head out to one of two extremes. On the one hand, liberal Christians, concerned to to bring Christ to a, a contemporary situation... Um, Embrace the arguments of our culture and the worldview of our culture. So, for them, well, there is no conflict between Christianity and same sex marriage because we don't hold the Bible to be authoritative or inerrant on those matters. Uh, we have to put it alongside human experience. We have to weigh science into the balance and see what those things say. And then, obviously, for conservative evangelical Christians, the liberal response was seen as an absolute capitulation to the gods of the age, the elemental spiritual forces of this world. It was an abandonment of God's revelation. But then what we conservatives tended to do was then to go out campaigning uh, for the imposition of a biblical set of morals on society as, ho- as a whole as though somehow Australian society was or is or could be made Christian by making it live as though somehow an external adherence to morality and to biblical law makes you Christian. Now, obviously, as far as same-sex marriage goes, Paul's got a very clear articulation of that. But in his thinking, neither of those extremes will do. He will not accept traditional religious Practices as though simply putting on a, a, a moral uh, cover or a religious lifestyle is Christian or is sufficient. But obviously, nor can we simply follow the gods of the age, the spiritual forces of this world, as though God's revelation in Christ were just one thing among many that we have to shuffle every day. For Paul, the gospel is neither of those things. I've written a note here, and now I can't read it. His summary of the gospel is in Christ. That's the position he takes. We'll come back to that position in a minute, Um, but first I need to confuse you by grappling with what Paul sees as the problem beneath the problem here. Because on the surface, he's disagreeing with their practices and behaviour But underneath this, of course, is a problem with the way they think. And Paul expresses that with some very carefully chosen words. He labels the primary problem a philosophy, and then he describes the nature of that philosophy as hollow and deceitful. Now, I think this is important because this is the only time the Greek New Testament uses the word philosophy, or in Greek, philosophy, philosophia, a love of wisdom and knowledge. Now, Greek philosophy was itself uh, a very wide-ranging, it was many things, but philosophia in general had a profound influence on the way that Greco-Roman people thought. Greek philosophy was essentially concerned with how to live well, living correctly. It was all about ethics. And the way you discern the correct way to live was um, through human observation of the world, we would call that empiricism, combined with human reason or logic. Now, some of you will notice that's actually what we call science. And science, likewise, has had an enormous impact on the way our culture thinks and the way we think. And for us, uh, knowledge about how to live well typically comes from the application of our reason, our logic, to our scientific observation of everything around us. And not only that, it's important to realise science puts, like philosophia, puts a lot of power on the observer, on, that is, on you and me, to reach conclusions for ourselves about what is right and wrong. But as far as Paul is concerned, philosophia, and therefore science, suffers from two problems that are still very relevant to the age we live in. The first, of course, is that human observation is limited. Because science limits knowledge to only what we can see, and, and that means whether we see it physically or we use some kind of scope to extend our sight, because it limits our knowledge only to what we see, then it says anything we cannot observe is therefore not real. It does not exist by definition that determines a lot about how we think as westerners the second problem with philosophy is that after two and a half thousand years Greek philosophy and science simply have not given rise to a people who desire to live well so much as to people who desire to live powerfully in our society knowledge is power if you've been to Perth Mod, you know that already. Um, we really do believe that armed with a smartphone and the internet, we are in control of our own destinies. No, this, this is now a DIY culture. Okay, we, we don't need other people to get our bathroom done. And we don't need God to save us either. But in fact, the biblical traditions disagree, not to mention the other cultures outside of Western Christianity uh, the western world knowledge in the biblical tradition consists of a lot more than what can be derived from human observation or from human reason so here's where for paul philosophia becomes a problem where it's hollow and where it's deceptive because ultimately philosophia taps into the very essence of human sinfulness The original sin of the man and the woman in the garden was based on their desire to reach out and to take the fruit of knowledge from the tree for themselves. And they did it believing it would give them the power to discern good from evil and make them like God. Now, there's great irony in the story in that the deceptive serpent manages to uh, convince the man and the woman that it is in fact God who is the deceiver, God who is holding back from you. And the tragedy of this story is that the man and the woman were already like God. They were already made in his image. And in the creation narrative, God had already spoken what was good and what was not good. So the essence of sin in this narrative is the desire to master knowledge apart from relationship with God. And once again, to know in the Bible most often means to be in relationship with. True knowledge is always relational knowledge. And relational knowledge is always revealed knowledge. I never know a person by starting from some uh, scientific point of view or or even starting from my own internal subjective point of view. I only know you as you reveal yourself to me. Relationships between persons are, are an ongoing process of revelation. And relationships between persons get into trouble when we close that revelation off from one another. And I think it's quite telling that Jesus reveals himself not with the words, study me, or know me, but the words, follow me. This is the nature of existence for people made in the image of God. We're made for relationship. And so this is why the phrase, in Christ, is so important. Because on the one hand... We only know God as he reveals himself in Christ. And on the other hand, he only knows us now as we are in Christ. Paul lays this out for us in verses 13 and 14. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it away, nailing it to the cross. How then does God see us from the perspective of the cross? How now does he regard us as he looks at us? Well, you might recall before Christmas, um, Stephen spoke on the doctrine of justification. And I'm not going to run you through the whole thing, Um, But just to revise that, you'll remember we learned about how God rightifies us and gives us justifiedness in Christ. And then with the help of Evan and Ozzie and some lying on the floor, um, he demonstrated how the man with the white book, Ozzie, the record of a perfect life of trusting the Father, took the sinful man, Evan's red book, um, and then went to the cross and suffered the just sentence brought on the red book so that he, the sinless man, might give his own perfect record to the sinful man who used to hold the red book. I won't go into it again. Have another listen if you need to. But the point is, Romans 8 summarises it well. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus Because the law of the spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. Paul expresses the same idea here in verse 14 when he says, The written charge sheet has been dealt with. It's been nailed to the cross. Where all can see the charges that stood against me have been fully and completely prosecuted. And sentence has been dispensed. They have been brought to their full end. It would now be correct to say that in Christ, my record no longer condemns me. In fact, not only has my record been cancelled, but the very standard by which I am judged and by which I fail has been cancelled. The written code itself has been crucified. So that I am no longer judged in terms of the law revealed to Moses, the written charge sheet. In Christ, that is no longer relevant. And the cross of Christ goes further, though. And this is important to know. In Christ, I participate in the death meted out upon sin so that I might also participate in his victorious resurrection. I have been brought through to the other side of judgment and death. Neither of those have any force any longer. They no longer have any hold on me. I know this is getting too good. Stay with me. Paul's going in, in a very important direction with this. Because just as it's true to say that my record does not condemn me, it is now also true to say my record of conduct Cannot save me. Only Christ's record commends me to the Father and saves me. In Christ, the Father now looks upon me with the same favour that he looks upon his own beloved Son. And that means the cross is truly the end of all my striving to save myself. And we simply won't be able to understand what Paul is going to say next and what we're going to think about next week, if we don't get this right. We will not understand the essence of Christian behaviour if we don't know what it means that we are in Christ. Now, in the evangelical circles I grew up in, um, the unspoken understanding of salvation, the unspoken, this is not what we said, but this is what we actually practised, the unspoken understanding was, well, of course I'm saved by grace. Of course, we all know that. But now, since God has been so good to me, I better pull up my socks. I, I, I better make a good show of it. I better not mess it up. And so Christian living became very much an emotional roller coaster ride of self-condemnation and regret when I found myself failing with habitual sins or even not-so-habitual sins, alternating with insufferable pride when I felt that I'd done especially well at resisting uh, habitual sins and when I felt I was doing a very good job of witnessing and, and uh, showing love to God and neighbour because what I secretly believed is that Christ's white book was in fact just another red book in disguise. That God had wiped the slate clean but the slate was still there and he was still racking up debt. That meant I had to go around and around again. But what you need to know is that my record is now irrelevant as far as God's acceptance and pleasure in me are concerned. In Christ, I am now the beneficiary of Christ's flawless faithfulness and his righteous living. That's what it means to have his righteousness imputed to me. As Eugene Peterson puts it, resurrection turns The tables. Again, I've written this down and I can't read it. Resurrection turns the tables. No longer am I doing something for God, God is doing something for me. How does the Father know you? He knows you now entirely and only in terms of your being in Christ. We have therefore been placed, we have therefore been identified and located in the only way that truly matters, and that is not cricket, that is Christ. And to be in Christ then also puts us in correct relationship uh, in two other ways. If Christ is the head of the church, then we have been placed in correct relationship with one another in him. And indeed, if Christ is the firstborn over all creation then in him we have been brought back into our proper relationship with the created universe, both the physical creation, as we learn in chapter 1, but also the spiritual realm, which means, like the Colossians, like so many in the world, we do not need to fear or serve the gods, and nor do we need to pay homage to the spirit of the age. So how do we get in on this? Well, there's a very important Christian practice that gives us uh, correct bearings for living in Christ. And that is our baptism. Once again, you realise your baptism is not important because of what you do or even how you do it. It's important because it speaks to the reality of what Christ has done. Baptism, like the Eucharist, isn't simply a reminder of a past historical event. It's a symbol that signifies our participation in a current reality. That having been joined with Christ in his death, we are now joined with the risen Christ in his life. So that Paul can say, we are brought to fullness in him. And it's not going too far to say that a person isn't Really alive. They're not even truly human until they are in Christ. And that's why the Bible doesn't know the category of the unbaptized Christian. Now, you might be in a number of different places as far as baptism goes. If you are baptized and you're a believer, then it's very important for you to know that your baptism is the way that you step off the emotional roller coaster of regret and unweaning pride. Your baptism is what holds you firm as you think about what it means to be in Christ. If you're a believer who's never been baptised, well this is the reason it's so important. It's the reason that Christ has given it to us as a command. Because it's the way you grasp this reality. It helps you live in it well. You may be a person who has been baptised in the past and don't know what you believe, not really sure about whether you're a Christian or not. Well, your baptism is the place you begin in unpacking and understanding the Christian life. And so too, if you're someone who's not baptised, don't know if you believe, don't know what you think, then your entry into this business is to find someone who is baptised and ask them, what's that about? What does it mean? Why did you do it? There's only one location then in life that truly matters and that is being in Christ. We'll come back next week to what it means, therefore, to live as a result of that, what our behaviour is going to look like and how it goes. But know this, the Christian life is neither a a matter of traditions. It's not a religious life. It's not a matter of putting on a, a, a pretense of something and it's certainly not simply a moral life. It is before anything a resurrection life. And that means a relational life. And as a resurrection life, it sets us free from the spirit of the age, from the spiritual forces of this world and their deception. It sets us free from self-grasping knowledge and self-made attempts at ethics, our own performance. I'd love you to go home today and know that the central jewel in the treasure chest of Christianity is this. God in Christ has brought us into company with himself. We are therefore known and loved and it therefore follows we shall come to know him and figure out what it means to love him in return. Let us pray. Lord, I pray this jewel um, would shine brightly before us, much brighter than my words could ever convey. May we know the great treasure of our baptism and what it means to have been made alive in Christ such that you now look upon us and say, here is my beloved Son. With him I am well pleased. Father, we bless you that that is the great place you brought us, for all the pleasure and joy of yours that is invested in that moment and is now given to us. We do thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.